The sermon text today will be from Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, this month we are uh, remembering the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. So we are just over a, a week away from the day that marks 500 years from the day that Martin Luther posted that challenge to uh, the pre-Reformation church entitled uh, A Disputation on the Efficacy and Power of Indulgences, which came to be known as the 95 Theses. He nailed that document to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, sparking the debate that would become the Protestant Reformation. The legacy of the Reformation is captured in these five solas uh, that we are covering this month. That on the basis of Scripture alone, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, all under the glory of God alone. And this morning we're talking about the concept of sola fide, that is faith alone. The central question of the Reformation is how can a person be made right with God? How can a person be made right with God? And Martin Luther had a tortured conscience. He was intensely aware of his shortcomings and sins, and he was desperate to know how he could be made right with God. He was plagued by these recurrent periods of depression over his sin, and and in fact, that's partly why he became a monk. He was trying to follow the church's own prescription for dealing with sins, because In the church, monasticism, becoming a monk, was one of the best ways to get to heaven. And so Luther wanted to please God and be made right with God. And so he became a monk. In other words, um, the the great revolt of Luther against the, the medieval church arose from his desperate attempt to follow the way that the church itself had prescribed. Luther's rebellion was born out of devotion. And uh, he, he wanted to be made right with God, and the church taught that to be justified, uh, to be made right with God, a person must participate in the works prescribed by the church. And then God's grace would come to them through that participation. And then in response to each person's good works, God would justify them. But this teaching is exactly what plagued Luther. How could you ever know if you had done enough good works? Or if you had done them sincerely enough? Or how could you be sure that you had confessed all of your sins? If the obligation is obedience to God, uh, who could fully satisfy that demand? The words of Psalm 130 pounded in Martin's ears, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So Luther was on a quest to find peace with God, and he found that finally in the scriptures alone. Anyone who wants to reckon with the heart of Christianity sooner or later must reckon with the Bible itself. 
Individual Christians may poorly represent the gospel. The church, sadly, may fail to defend it from time to time. And yet the Bible will never fail to show God in Christ to the one who reads it by faith. And that is what happened for Martin Luther. As he studied the scriptures, uh, he encountered in them a way of salvation which the church had undermined and obscured. And Luther became convinced on the basis of scripture that to be made right with God, a person must simply believe, have faith in the finished works of Christ, and God will account the righteousness of Christ to you. This was Luther's central insight, and this was the material cause of the Reformation, the substance that caused the whole revolution. Luther said, justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. And John Calvin agreed, saying, there is no point which is more keenly contested, none in which our adversaries are more inveterate in their opposition than that of justification. Namely, as to whether we obtain it by faith or by works. On no account will they allow us to give Christ the honor of being called our righteousness, unless their works come in at the same time for a share of the merit. The dispute is not whether good works ought to be performed by the pious and whether they are accepted by God and rewarded by him, but whether by their own worth these good works reconcile us to God whether we acquire eternal life at their price. Luther, Luther and Calvin were both seeing the same thing and saying that justification, being made right with God through faith alone, was the heart of the need for reformation in the church. So our broad outline this morning will be distortion, recovery, and legacy. The distortion of this doctrine in the pre-Reformation church and then the recovery of this doctrine, particularly by Martin Luther, and then the legacy of this doctrine to this very day in our own lives and in the church. So distortion, recovery, and legacy. So first, we have to consider where the church was at the time and the distortion that, of the biblical gospel that the church was guilty of. We'll look at this in two ways. First, in the official doctrine of the church, and then secondly, in the practices that grew out of that doctrine. So regarding the official doctrine of the church, at the Council of Trent, uh, which took place right in the middle of the Reformation, it was the church's attempt to clarify uh, their doctrine and teaching in response to the Reformation. Uh, the council at the Council of Trent clarified its position on these things. And here are some statements typical of what was produced in the Council of Trent. The council furthermore declares that they who by sins were alienated from God may be disposed through his quickening and assisting grace to convert themselves to their own justification by freely assenting to and cooperating with that grace. The council of Trent went on to say that those who by sin have fallen from the received grace of justification may be justified through the sacrament of penance. And that justification must be uh, preserved through good works which are energized by the grace of God infused into the believer. In these statements, the church was teaching that justification was something that God grants to those who have sort of cleaned themselves up enough to the point that they already exhibit a righteousness acceptable to God. So you do good works with the desire to please God, and then in response to those good works, God justifies a person. This is like a religious meritocracy. How do you get right with God? Earn it. Do enough good works. 
Uh, now then, what, what practices did this doctrine result in? Well, the church said that these good works included uh, giving to the poor, contributing to the needs of the church, and participating in the seven sacraments of the church, especially confession of sins to a priest, and performing penance as payment for sin, and, and things like this. So, for instance, Martin Luther would spend hours confessing his sins each day. Upon entrance into the Augustinian monastery, he had been assigned a confessor, uh, a priest who he would confess his sins to. And he'd do this often daily and sometimes for up to six hours a day and uh, on, a, on, on a single occasion. And then sometimes as he was leaving the confessional booth, he'd remember some sin that he'd forgotten. And so he'd rush back in uh, to confess further these sins. So much so that he was exasperating to the priest that he had been assigned to, Johann von Staupitz, who eventually said to him, Look here, Brother Martin, if you expect Christ to forgive you, come in with something worth confessing, like murder or blasphemy or adultery, instead of all these fake sins. But Luther's understanding of the, teach, the church's teaching was accurate. Uh, that church doctrine, in church doctrine, the way to be made right with God was to excel at the art of confession. Uh, another practice that obscured the gospel, perhaps the most excessive example in the time of Luther, was something called an indulgence. An indulgence was basically the church's forgiveness of sin. So if you had indulged your sins, uh, you could be forgiven with an indulgence. It was a proclamation by the church that your sins were atoned for. Now, most indulgences were partial, meaning that you could lessen your consequences or shorten your time in purgatory. But there was also something known as a plenary indulgence, which is a full pardon from the punishment of sin. This was incredible. This is like a get-out-of-jail card. But not quite a get-out-of-jail-free card uh, because you had to pay something. Uh, one story about indulgences, which may be familiar to some of you, uh, is that Pope Leo X, he was the Pope during the time of Luther, Leo X wanted to resume construction of St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican City. Uh, but to do this, he had to raise funds. He had a lot of grand building projects going on, and so he had drained the papal coffers, and he needed to replenish the money. And so what better way than to offer a plenary indulgence for anyone who would contribute according to their means uh, for the building of St. Peter's Basilica. This was like the ultimate building campaign. And so having declared the availability of this indulgence, the Pope sent out friars into all the towns and villages who would inform the population about the availability of it. Now one of these men was named John Tetzel. Now Tetzel was a master salesman of these indulgences. He had great showmanship so that he would march into a town with the document declaring the indulgence raised overhead on a golden pillow. And at just the right moment, the church bells would ring and the organs would start playing. And with great showmanship, Tetzel would announce this indulgence and then collect contributions to send back to Rome for the building of the basilica. But it all amounted to people purchasing a license to sin freely without repercussion or to release their dead loved ones from purgatory. It seemed like a splendid bargain. But then you were made right with God, not by faith, but by contributing to Leo's building projects. You know, Martin Luther was watching all this and became very angry. And while Tetzel never actually entered Wittenberg, there were people from Luther's town, Wittenberg, who crossed the border to go get these indulgences from Tetzel. Who wouldn't travel to get something like that? 
But then they brought the indulgences back to Martin Luther and showed them to him and asked him what he thought of them. And of course, he rejected it and was vehemently angry over this situation. And this is the conflict that, that led to the posting of the 95 Theses. And it was a conflict between Luther and Tetzel, but it was really a conflict between Luther and the Pope. As Luther said in the 82nd of these 95 Theses, why does the Pope not empty purgatory for the sake of holy love and for the sake of the desperate souls that are there? If he is able to redeem an infinite number of souls for the sake of miserable money with which to build a cathedral? While Tetzel's performances may have been the final straw the indulgence was typical of Roman Catholic practice that you can purchase uh, with money or good works the favor of God through the intermediary of the church and the Pope. These are examples of what we mean when we say that the church in the time of the Reformation, both in doctrine and in practice, taught that justification comes not only by faith in God, which is actually negotiable, uh, but also, and more importantly, through the works prescribed by the Roman Catholic Church. Well, these distortions were disastrous to the gospel as it was commissioned to the apostles to preach. The gospel truth is the good news that God doesn't demand anything from us to be made right with him, but simple faith in Jesus Christ. As the hymn says, the only fitness he requires is that you feel your need of him. This truth, this gospel truth, is a treasure chest of endless gold. But the church had buried this treasure deep under layers of the dirt of church tradition and unbiblical doctrine. And so Martin Luther went digging. Out of a sense of his own need and unworthiness, Luther went digging. And finally, at long last, he heard his shovel clank against this treasure chest of the gospel as he was lecturing through uh, Paul's epistles to the Romans and the Galatians in the years 1516 through 1518. And it was, it was during this time that he developed this growing conviction that the church had misdiagnosed the human condition. And more than that, that they were prescribing the wrong medicine for the actual sickness of the human soul. So as we turn to our second point, the recovery of this doctrine by, of justification by faith alone, I want to show you what it was that Martin Luther saw, what it was that opened his eyes to those truths that the church had buried so deep underground. There were three passages of scripture that led Martin Luther to the recovery of this gospel treasure. The first was Romans 1, verse 17. Romans 1, 17, where Paul says, for in it, that is the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Martin Luther came to see that what Paul was referring to here when he says a righteousness of God is revealed is that it is, it is a righteousness that is from God, a righteousness that comes from him and is granted to people by him so that they have a right standing with God. This is how a person is made right with God. And Paul says further in Romans 1.17 that it is from faith for faith. It begins and ends in faith. Meaning that the gift of God's righteousness is revealed through faith. 
So when Martin Luther saw these truths, his experience was dramatic. He describes his experience as he was meditating on and lecturing through this passage. In his own words, he says, Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement, The just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Upon seeing this, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet. This passage of Paul became for me a gate to heaven. Luther was beginning to see that God justifies. God makes sinners right with him by faith alone apart from works. As Luther continued lecturing at the university through the book of Romans, he had just taught on Romans 1 verse 17 and he keeps moving through the letter and shortly he comes upon Romans 3, 21 through 26, the second passage that was so compelling to him. Romans 3, 21 through 26, where Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Well, here again, that phrase, the righteousness of God, clearly means not simply that God is just and and morally perfect and upright himself, though he certainly is that, but it means also that he gives his righteousness as a gift, unearned, to those who simply have faith in Jesus. The third passage where Luther saw this truth was in Galatians chapters 2 and 3. Again, in his role as professor and chair of the Bible uh, there at the university, he was lecturing through Galatians now, and he came to this passage, Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, where Paul says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. No one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul was clearly teaching that human efforts to please God, even through obedience to God's own law, can accomplish nothing. You 
can't earn favor with God through works. If you add the law to the gospel, then the gospel ceases to be good news. No, the the direction of righteousness is not that righteousness comes from sinners going up to God to earn his favor, but rather that righteousness comes from God down to sinners and is granted to them as a gift on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. So there are these three compelling passages that, um, that, that open Martin Luther's eyes to the gospel. But how can we summarize what, what Paul was teaching here? What it was that Martin Luther saw in these passages? Well, again, three things. First of all, uh, completely sinful. Man is completely sinful. So the first step in the right direction for Martin Luther was his own despair over his sinful condition. Now, through his theological training in the church, Luther had come to believe, he had been taught uh, that man was capable of pleasing God with truly good works, that there was this goodness that remained in all of us even after the fall of Adam and Eve, like glowing embers beneath the ashes. But through these passages, Luther came to see that idea as contrary to Scripture. Even through works of God's own law, Man is incapable of pleasing God. This is why Paul says in Romans 3 that without distinction, all have sinned and have fallen short of God's glory. This is where Luther felt an acute need to be made right with God. You know, many who become aware of their sins become aware of their sins in the same way that a sleeping teenager is aware of the alarm going off. They hear the alarm going off. They may even roll over hit the snooze button, they're vaguely aware of something happening, but oppressed by the power of sleep, they roll back again, put their pillow over their heads, and continue in their sleep. But to be made right with God, a person must have more than a sleepy awareness of sin. To be made right with God, a person needs to first of all know how badly the relationship has been damaged, how sin has alienated us from God. This was the first thing that Luther came to see in these passages, that no human being could render works that are acceptable to God because we all alike are, um, are completely sinful. Clear awareness of this truth is a precondition for justification. The second uh, insight that Luther drew from Romans and Galatians is that the word justified means declared righteous. The word justified means that God declares sinners righteous. So in Romans 3.28, Paul says, We hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. And in Galatians 3.16, he says almost exactly the same thing. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the Roman Catholic tradition had understood justification to mean that God makes sinners righteous. He makes us to be righteous. He makes us able to perform good works, uh, to have a righteousness of our own, and then we have a right standing with him, or we're justified, on the basis of our works. God infuses grace so that people can become righteous. But Luther saw clearly in these passages that God does not make us righteous. God declares us righteous against the evidence. God declares us righteous. Luther said that God gives us an alien righteousness, a goodness that is not our own, that is foreign to us. It's as if in a legal sense, as if in a courtroom kind of decision, 
God imputes the righteousness from the, the, the holy, perfect life of Christ to the sinner. And he imputes the sinner's sin and the punishment that is required from it to Jesus Christ. Luther described this transaction going both ways as a sweet exchange between Christ and the sinner. He said to his church, Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, learn Christ and him crucified. Learn to pray to him, despairing of yourself, saying, You, Lord Jesus, are my righteousness, and I am your sin. You have taken on yourself what you were not, and you have given to me what I am not. God, against the evidence, declares sinners righteous on the basis of an alien righteousness, the life of Jesus. And then the third truth that Luther saw was that this declaration from God is by faith alone, by faith alone, not from merit. It was in October of 1518, uh, one year after posting the 95 Theses, as Luther's understanding of these passages and Uh, Paul's doctrine was developing, that we first find in Luther's writing the striking sentence in Latin, sola fides justificate, faith alone justifies. Luther went on to say, friends of the cross affirm that the cross is good and that works are bad. Luther had a way of putting things very strongly. The cross is good, works are bad. Now, Luther said that specifically in regards to attaining a right standing with God. When he says works are bad, he's speaking specifically about attaining a right standing with God. No works can be admitted into that equation. It must be faith alone in the cross. In fact, Luther went on to say, if faith is not without even all the smallest of works, it does not justify. Indeed, it is not even faith. If faith is not separated from and standing alone from all works, even the smallest, it is not even faith. As soon as you mix your works in, it ceases to be faith. Well, Luther was aware that, in a sense, he was adding the word alone uh, to Paul. In fact, legend has it that at Romans 1.17, where it says, the just shall live by faith, that Luther took up his quill and penned in at the end of that verse, alone. The just shall live by faith alone. But he was convinced that this was the true intent of Paul's teaching. This was the actual point that Paul was trying to communicate by separating faith and works and saying we are saved on the basis of faith and not of works of the law. At the same time, Luther was careful to guard against the idea that faith itself was a meritorious work, a a work that earned favor with God. So the objection might arise, But isn't faith a sort of work that we perform to merit faith? And Luther says, no, far from it, for two reasons. First of all, faith is passive. It's receptive. It doesn't cause God's grace to be, but it only receives God's grace. He referred to it as the receptive organ of the human soul. It receives God's grace. Faith adds nothing, but receives everything. So faith is receptive and passive. And then second of all, because faith is a gift. Faith itself is a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So for these two reasons, Luther said, No, faith is not a work that merits salvation. It's something very different. 
But as we turn finally then to consider the legacy of the Reformation regarding the doctrine of justification by faith alone, it's clear that Luther's insight on this matter, his recovery of these truths, uh, has shaped our reading of the Bible and the way that we relate to God. Uh, One observer said, the Reformation was not principally a negative movement about moving away from Rome and its corruption. It was a positive movement about moving toward the gospel. These truths have moved us toward the gospel and helped us read the Bible more accurately. And yet the distinctions between the biblical gospel and so much of Roman Catholic doctrine are as relevant now today as they were in Luther's day. The Catholic Catechism today states that justification includes sanctification and the renewal of the inner man. Justification is granted us through baptism. It conforms us to the righteousness of God who justifies us. Justification includes sanctification. It's achieved by works, the works of baptism in particular. In this regard, the current Catholic catechism differs not a bit on the issues of this doctrine declared by the Council of Trent in Luther's day. There are evangelical and Roman Catholic leaders suggesting that now is the time for us to move beyond these distinctions. Uh, Last year, Pope Francis on October 31st said, Uh, that Protestants and Catholics now have the opportunity to mend a critical moment of our history by moving beyond the controversies and disagreements that have often prevented us from understanding one another. Well, the problem in Luther's day and ever since then has never been a failure to understand one another. The problem has always been that we have understood one another and that there has been a jeopardizing of the gospel in the Roman Catholic Church. And as long as those controversies jeopardize the gospel, it will never be time to move beyond them. Evangelicals should not hope to see the Protestant Reformation undone or undermined in any way. And the main reason that we shouldn't want the work undone is that we don't want to undo justification by faith alone, which was the heart of the Reformation. And the health of every true Christian and the church at large is rooted in a biblical understanding of this doctrine. John Calvin said in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, we must bear in mind that justification is the main hinge on which religion turns so that we must devote the greater attention and care to it. For unless you, first of all, grasp what your relationship to God is and the nature of his judgment concerning you, you have neither a foundation on which to establish your salvation now nor one on which to build piety toward God. Understanding the biblical doctrine of justification through faith alone, understanding what it means to be made right with God, is the only foundation on which to build your sense of assurance of acceptance with God. And it's also the only foundation on which to build a piety, a holy life toward God. If you want assurance of salvation, if you want progress in holiness, then you must understand justification through faith alone. Holiness, doing good works, um, is an essential result of faith. But holiness does not precede and lead to justification, but rather good works come after justification and flow from it. So John Calvin elsewhere in his, um, his antidote to the Council of Trent said, 
It is faith alone which justifies. And yet the faith which justifies is never alone. Justification through faith alone is the only sure foundation for assurance before God and for growth in that that holiness which Hebrews says, without which no one will see the Lord. Despite our sinfulness, which every one of us will carry with us till the day we die, we can still have confidence before God on the basis, the foundation of this doctrine. We can have confidence before God. There's a painting from the time of the Reformation. It's by uh, Lucas Cronach, the elder. The painting was completed by his son, Lucas Cronach, the younger. And uh, this painting is of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. His blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And at the foot of the cross, Martin Luther is the most prominent of several figures standing with his eyes fixed on Jesus. In his left hand, he has the Bible open and his other hand has a finger planted on Hebrews 4.16, which says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Luther's doubts and and that guilty conscience he had that plagued him were, were persistent throughout life, and yet he had this hope that because of the death, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he was able to find confidence to draw near to God. The same is true for us through faith alone in the work of Christ. You may be accepted by God. Accept that acceptance. If you have wondered how you can be made right with God, this is the way. If you have wondered if you have been made right with God and have doubted that, this is the way. The hymn says, Well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. When the accuser roars at you, you have this this gospel truth ready for you. The accuser is right about your sins. But he is wrong about God's grace. As far as the east is from the west, so far as has he removed our transgressions from us. So far has he removed your transgressions from you because of Jesus Christ. Against all evidence, God declares sinners righteous through faith alone in Christ. The recovery of this doctrine is something that we should give thanks for. Indeed, this doctrine is what we should root our lives in. We find our standing with God, our progress in faith in this doctrine. And so as we conclude, let us give thanks together uh, for God's kindness to us in Christ. We'll take a moment of silence to reflect on these things, to seek God and His humble, His kindness and humble thanksgiving, and then I'll close us in prayer.